Okay, thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I'm Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer at the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. Today, I am being joined by Dr. Kevin D. Tennant, Senior Lecturer in Management at the University of York Management School. Now, supported by an exploratory research grant in 2019, Dr. Tennant used Hagley collection materials to investigate industrial democracy in America between 1913 and 1935. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me as well. Thanks for Absolutely, me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Well, uh, let's begin by defining terms. Um, what do you mean by industrial democracy? Well, here we mean essentially a kind of form of, well, expressing employee voice in some form. But, well, okay, so there, there are broad many broad forms which employee democracy could take, right? So we're probably defining it fairly narrowly in some sense, but we're kind of, in an, in an overall sense, it can be seen as some form of employees having a voice within the way that a business or an organization, so it doesn't have to be a profit-making business, but an organization is run in some way. So it's having that kind of input, if you like, into the kind of management, management process, if you like, um, which, which can be useful for, for employees. Now, the reason that this is quite interesting at the moment, of course, is that this is kind of politically fashionable, right? So we've seen, um, so the race has moved on now, but we've seen Elizabeth Warren, um, for example, um, talking about the need for employee representation plans of some form, employee democracy of some form. In the UK, Theresa May, the former Prime Minister talked about it as well, got as far as putting the proposal to the Confederation of British Industry, um, failed there. Bernie Sanders has also talked about this idea in his presidential bids as well. Um, so there's a lot of interest on the kind of broad left and, and sometimes even on the right to some extent in the possibilities of employee representation and employee democracy um, in this sense. But the, the, yeah, the more nuanced question is what kind of form should these organizations take? What should they actually do? Or these parts of organizations take and what they should actually do? And this is kind of more complicated, if you like. So, yeah, so, so it's a, we're not kind of here necessarily talking about, say, having, you know, cooperatives in the sense that, you know, employee cooperatives, for example, this might be a bit different. This would be kind of applying it towards, how do you apply it towards kind of, large shareholding organizations where you know uh, you have diversified ownership and control for example so it's it's it's, it's thinking about getting into these kind of large uh, fortune 500 type private sector organizations so this is actually our kind of starting point really is that this is a politically kind of interesting thing at the moment um, we're also interested because we started actually um, looking at corporate governance more broadly. So we looked at, we participated in, Andrew Smith and I participated in Jason Russell, who worked with us on this part of the project as well. Um, we participated in an event at the Seattle University Law School two years ago. Um, and every year they have a, a Berla symposium and this year it was a 10th anniversary symposium and they decided to look at it to look at kind of corporate governance historically so we kind of got involved because we were interested in looking at the um 
the Berlin Means book from 1932 and the kind of um, questions that that had asked about US corporate governance. So the shift from kind of a shareholder maximization model towards more of a stakeholder one, you see going through the 30s, 40s and 50s and then sort of slowly shifting backwards again. So certainly after 1970 and 1980 more so back towards a shareholder maximization model. And now you have kind of you know, academics saying that shareholder maximization is the normative model, right? So we were interested in that kind of area of it. And then one of the things that interested us about this was that Berlin means, so where you have systems in continental Europe, particularly, so Germany, for instance, being the most classic example, to some extent Scandinavia as well, you, you tend to have, where you have this kind of stakeholder governance, you actually, you tend to have often some form of co-determination, um, as it's called in these countries, where you have some form of worker representation, workplace kind of democracy. So Germany, having brought this in in the early 1950s, essentially after the, the Second World War. So you, you get this kind of, yeah, so what we were quite interested in was that Berlin Means didn't really... That, you know, they, they, they're very much managerialists. They're at the kind of the, the forefront of the managerial revolution before people like Peter Drucker get involved and before um, certainly people like Alfred Chandler, for example, really start filling it out in some ways. They're kind of sort of saying, okay, well, managers are the, the professional, educated, dispassionate people, if you like, who, who are capable of governing firms and allocating societal resources if you like, um, within the firms. And that's the kind of role, is to allocate these kind of firm resources. So, um, yeah, so, so you have that kind of idea going on, but they don't ascribe much possibility to workers for doing this, or potential to workers for doing this. And, and, and so that was one of our interests, because then we discovered that around this same time, actually, there had been a worker representation movement in the United States, and Berla um, advised FDR's part of the kind of brains trust and the kind of setting up of the New Deal by people like Wagner and so on. So the, the interesting thing here is, is that the New Deal comes in and this is seen in the US as kind of a shift in some ways to the left, right? And, uh, to the left in kind of policy terms in some ways, okay? But at the same time, actually, it kind of closes down the possibilities for a co-determination. So, <laughs> so as the New Deal comes in, it's very much a kind of managerialist New Deal, if you like. It's assumed that these kind of benevolent managers who are, you know, not responsible, you know, theoretically they're responsible to shareholders, but are they responsible to shareholders um, come in? And the idea is, is, okay, you shareholders are going to trust um, the managers to make the right decisions for you, but also, and this is the other interesting thing, they're also going to be trusted to to redistribute for employees in the right kinds of way as well. So, 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 so this this is quite interesting. So that kind of spurred us to look in more depth for this issue of employee representation, as a kind of initially as a kind of sub area, but it's now become a big, as as happens in research, it's become a bigger project in its own right. I mean, this is quite interesting to me. I've never, so I've never really worked on kind of lower level human relations type material before but it's quite interesting this area of kind of 
um, labour history and how it feeds back into overall governance, if you like. So, so yeah, that's that's kind of where it where it came from, and that's what led us towards Hagley. Sure. So, so well, Hagley being yeah, Karen. Well, what Hagley collections then uh, did you use for your research? Yeah, so Hagley was a good place to start, obviously, as, <laughs> as the kind of you know so. Certainly, even from the UK, we consider it to be one of you know the main or the, the the leading sort of American repository because it just kind of brings together so much stuff, right? And <laughs> so we had a look through and we talked to people like um, Lucas Clausen, there who were very helpful, um, and and actually a team are very very helpful. I've, I've, I've been to many archives around the world, but I thought that the the Hagley team is particularly passionate. Um, about what they do, and I think this is quite, quite exciting, and it's <laughs> quite good in itself. It felt, you know, it, it felt good to be somewhere where it's clear that kind of knowledge is being pursued for, and research is being pursued for its own sake in some ways as well. But yeah, in terms of actual collections, um, we looked at. So I think I looked at four collections roughly. So I looked at um, another bits and bobs as well. <laughs> so I used materials from both the archives and the library, but particularly useful in the archives were the, so the. On microfilm, you have the records of a company called Leeds and Northrop, um, a small engineering firm who made, um, I think, kind of scientific instruments and instruments for boilers and things like this. So they made kind of precision engineering products, basically. Uh, a small firm from Philadelphia, so not very far from Hagley, but they had from 1919 until at least the start of the Second World War. Uh, an employee representation program that was incredibly well worked out and better yet they had kept the archives so what seems to have happened in some cases when there were employee representation plans so lots of big firms had them um, so General Electric had one uh, International Harvester Western Union uh, some of the Standard Oil so Rockefeller was very keen on them so some of the kind of Standard Oil subsidiaries or after the kind of breakup, under the uh, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going. Out. After the breakup under the Sherman Acts, then um, the Standard Oil subsidiaries started having them as well. So um, yeah, so a lot of firms had them, um, but not many seem to have kept them as part of the corporate archive, if you like. So in some cases, because it's you know, they were called cooperative organizations or associations. In some cases, what the actual representation scheme was, and it was slightly separately constituted. So in some cases, the, the records of this haven't survived in particular detail or in particular depth um, within the corporate archive. Um, so because um, Morris Leeds, who is the president of Leeds and Northrop, kind of saw the cooperative association, as he called it, or as the company called it, they saw it as a big part of what they were doing. Um, they then kept it within their overall corporate archive, which is microfilmed and, and given to Hagley. So this is quite useful um, to be able to go through on the, the microfilm machine at Hagley. Um, so I looked at quite a lot of the records of it, and it has quite complete meeting minutes and this sort of thing. So it was more complete than, so you also have um, stuff from Bethlehem Steel, 
who right, so very complete, fantastically, you know, if you're a historian of Bethlehem steel in itself, say this would be a dream because you have very, very complete boxes of paper, you know, records of that. But a few, just a few folders within those boxes, uh, within the, yeah, just a few kind of, sort of the slimmer line folders within it of the employee representation plan. Um, same for the Pennsylvania Railroad. So the Pennsylvania Railroad's files take up a whole wall, right? And I've, I've seen Al Torella's fantastically thick book on the first, and that's supposed to be the first volume, right? On the, <laughs> but, um, but again, you, you, you've got some quite good records of its employees representation plan, but they're fairly, so there's quite a lot of documents from it, but again, not really many minutes so there's a lot of kind of the public relations about it. There's a lot of things like uh, talking about it in abstract, how many cases they resolved for it and things like this. But there's not as much detail necessarily about the actual meeting. So the Leeds and Northrop file seemed to be the best one that I've seen. There's also some stuff in the SEPTA files, the, the Transport, um, Transport Organization for Philadelphia and Rounds files, um, which was a private company in the 1920s and also had an employee representation plan. Uh, but again, I didn't find that the files were there and that weren't quite as good. But the other thing is the employee representation plan there was quite well documented in some cases compared to others. Um, so yeah, the, so the Leeds and Norfolk files are good because what you have is you have basically kind of monthly meetings of its committee it's one of these cases where there's almost too much, which is good, right? So, <laughs> so it did take quite a lot of time for me to work out what was going on in some ways. Um, but you, you, you have kind of monthly meetings of the committee there. You have the kind of policy documents. You can, to some extent, also look at the, the board minutes of the company as a whole. So the other thing is, is that what's annoying in a lot of corporate archives is that the board minutes are kept by the company themselves, right? So in some cases, this is also an issue. Um, but the great thing is, is that you've got the Leeds and Northrop kind of executive committee minutes, as they called it, and then the, as they call it, and then you've got the the board, you've got the minutes of the corporate association as well. So you can see to some extent the the goings on between them, <laughs> and and what the two bodies are doing, what they're talking about. So this was quite interesting and quite useful. And and when I kind of hit on this, I kind of realised that this is quite a good kind of collection to go through, if you like. So. Um, so even though it can be difficult to get things off microfilm <laughs> at times, it's still a, it's a very, very good kind of holding. It's very complete. Um, it's one of these, so it's one of these things where you, you can, one of the things that's quite good when you're working with archives is being able to work out, you know, what you're looking at, but then we've got big loads of documents. If there's a kind of regular pattern, like a meeting minute, and then you get that list of participants every month and this kind of thing, then it gives you a structure to work with, right? So the Leeds and Northrop files have that, <laughs> have that structure and it's really good. And we can get into some of the stuff that they're kind of talking about there. So, so it's quite interesting. It's really interesting from that perspective is sort of, you can see, you know, what, what, the, what the, the organization actually did. So it seems to be quite a good case study um, and yeah, we're, we're going to make that particular case study central to a paper that we're now putting together uh, for a big management journal around this around this topic, if you like. We're going to try and look at 
what are the impacts of employee voice coming through a cooperative organization like Leeds and Northrop had, essentially. So how did it how did it impact the firm? What did these cooperative organizations or corporate associations, if you like, actually do? Was it kind of um, was it good in terms of strategy or innovation, for example, or was it more of a kind of a, a body for collective bargaining and this kind of thing? Uh, so, so this was our kind of, uh, yeah, th this is what we were sort of looking for there. So the interesting thing there was that we had one theory that, um, so there's a, some work done on the steel industry, uh, particularly by Dan Wren, who, uh, the management historian, who's shown that um, in the sort of Great Depression period, particularly employee representation employee representation plans are quite useful at kind of improving productivity and innovation in the steel industry because the thing was is that you could um, you could talk to employees and they would spot things that the management didn't essentially so you break down that agency problem if you like or you um, so yeah so, so you, um, you yeah you, you kind of draw on the kind of shop floor knowledge if you like, of the staff and people are saying, well, okay, we're doing it this very inefficient way. It would be better if we could just do this or <laughs> something like that. So we, we, we did think originally that that might be one reason or one additional driver, if you like, for having company unions or company registration, uh, co employee representation rather, structures. Um, how, however, we, we don't see that surfacing as much in the Leeds and Norfolk files, or in fact, in the Bethlehem Steel ones either, really. So this is quite interesting. They, they do have suggestion schemes and this kind of thing. And there is a safety committee that look at kind of minor, you know, it looks at ongoing safety kind of details in the factory, but the, the records of that part of it aren't as good. So we don't see kind of detailed minutes all the time of it, co it crops up from time to time, but we, and things like, um, doors in sheds that are causing the shed to be closed and <laughs> could it be opened in the summer and cold rather than could it be opened in the summer could it be um, you know closed in the winter things like this are coming up um, but we don't really see kind of hard innovation material kind of coming through and the other sense I got from so what I did was I went through the um, the minutes of the cooperative association first and then I thought, well, we're, you know, we're probably only seeing, we're seeing kind of their side of here, but what if I look now at the executive minutes as well? And yeah, what we, I didn't see much evidence there that they were engaging them in. So I wouldn't say that they're engaging them in strategic decision-making around, you know, new products or anything like this particularly. Um, so this is quite interesting. Um, and some of the ratings of Morris Leeds himself are also in, in the microfilm as well. And they're quite useful as well because he gives quite a lot of useful context there. So he talks about wanting to involve the um, employees in, in things which impact them more directly. And his view of that is that it's about wages, conditions, vacations, um, and, and on all of these sides of it, overtime comes up a lot, inevitably, in a kind of a factory environment where, you know, there might be big orders to do. And so there was more 
Uber time at some points, particularly while this is an engineering factory. So there are cases where it can be kind of feast or famine, where you get more orders and less orders. And so you have an unequal ebb and flow of the workload at times, and particularly through the depression, of course, period, which, which the, the, the files kind of cover. So, yeah, so you, you get that. You get that you, so you get that sense that so what he's interested in is he he's interested in trying to use it as a bargaining platform really to some extent so it's it's about trying to uh, yeah it's it's trying to find ways to resolve or it can be trying to find ways to resolve disputes in the factory without there being unions involved externally for example um, so so yeah so there's that whole area yeah yeah so what is what is the relationship between these um, internal employee representation schemes and yeah. organized labor uh, prop more unionism as you know as uh, yeah. we understand it so the, yeah yeah well they, they, they so the, the the basic answer to that is that organized labor doesn't like it or didn't like it right so <laughs> so so this is one of the yeah it's one of the big kind of the, the, the factors that comes around it. So Samuel Gompers himself, the then the president of the, the AFL, um, is pretty much argues that, you know, he says in, I think it's 1921, that the industrial, the industrial representation bodies are basically actually, you know, they're impeding industrial democracy because the unions basically see them as rival bodies that are set up by the uh, the, the companies to substitute for, for organized labor. Um, so, yeah, so I think, so, so this issue is that, yeah, some of it is about union substitution. Um, some of it's actually about union suppression. Not surprisingly, a lot of labor historians have argued more for the latter, that it's about union suppression. Uh, to some extent, I think it can be illustrated more as union substitution is quite complicated because <laughs> uh, it appears that in the in Leeds case um, the employees are actually quite happy to be represented for example by this body um, and when the Wagner Act comes in in 1935 when it's going through Congress um, the, the employees of the firm actually uh, submit they get together and get 700 signatures against the Wagner Act and it's a firm that at that time employs about 800 people so so they they so they they, they have you know that that the, there is a genuine sense there that people do want to engage with this in a meaningful way and they're not as interested in organized organized labor in the same sense so yeah so <clears throat> so organized labor certainly sees it as a, a rival and I think Again, where you look at Bethlehem steel materials and that kind of end of it, you get a lot of stuff there from management talking about how brilliant and harmonious it is that they've avoided <laughs> having to deal with external unions. So I think there is an element there, certainly, yeah, of union suppression. But, but certainly, I think the Leeds case is more of a case of kind of union substitution. And obviously, either way, the unions don't, the formal trade union or labor unions don't want to be seen as being sub substituted and then the danger is they equate that then to suppression I think as well so there's a there's a difference there though however between that suppression and 
or between substitution and suppression to declare there's a difference there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And it's quite complicated to tease out which is going on at different times. Mm -hmm. um, but, but a lot of this comes from you know, the, 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 um, the movement as a whole grows out of the First World War to a large extent. Um, so there had been earlier experiments with it. So the Filene department store in Boston was one of the earliest um, to have a system of industrial representation. And this was kind of Boston's leading department store. Um, and this had it as early as 1898. So they have a cooperative association that leads a Northrop one appears in some ways to be, to be based on. But then what you get from around the First World War is a sense that this is a way to increase productivity um, through the First World War and then into the early post-war period as well. Um, and then you get, you get bodies like the, uh, the National Industrial Conference Board, for example, being set up to further these. So by the early 1920s, there's something like 250 organizations that have employee representation bodies. It's just unfortunate that probably more, more evenly spread records didn't, didn't quite make it through. But yeah, they, so the National Industrial Conference Board becomes a body that starts to draw together these kinds of different, um, different experiences. And you get, um, you get various people kind of, as well, kind of campaigning for them um, as well. So, so Leitch and is a big proponent of this idea and he pushes forward a, um, he writes a book in 1919, which pushes forward an idea that you should have an, a representation body, which is actually based on Congress of a House of Representatives and a, a Senate and a president and all this kind of thing, right? So there's some, there's some organizations where they actually do copy the, the not, so the, 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 the US kind of constitution in quite literal ways. And they're actually literally bringing democracy into the organization, you see. So, so this, is, this is quite interesting. And then there's a guy called Holbrook Porter as well, who pushes it um, again from an innovation point of view. So he argues again that having industrial democracy will lead to kind of new perspectives and new ideas emerging. Um, we, we, don't, we don't kind of see this to the same extent that we were hoping to see. So I think this is one of the puzzles that kind of still remains here to some extent. But yeah, I, I think it, it is quite interesting um, that a lot of the discussion that goes on tends to be around these areas of overtime bargaining. It certainly helps. So it helps the Leeds and Northrop company get through the depression, certainly, because the employees accept a paid, accept a wage cut. Um, and they accept kind of doing less hours to try and avoid redundancies at one point as well. So there are quite good kind of positive, there are some good positive kind of productivity effects, if you like. Well, how was that body constituted? Um, the uh, employee representative body in hmm. Leeds and Norfolk? So in the Leeds and Norfolk case, they didn't copy Congress, but what they did have was they, 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 they basically had a council of about 25 members. So its, its membership kind of varies, but I would say it was more based on a kind of municipal organization in their case. So you had a, a central council of about 20, 25 members elected by, the, by each shop 
right? So you had the, obviously the different departments and shops of the factory and they elected representatives directly into this. So there is a bit of a kind of a constant, there's a constituency system or a, uh, what do you call it in America, a district system in there. So you have a kind of a first past the post system going on within it, yeah. Um, you don't really get factions emerging as far as I can tell. So <laughs> there isn't really a party system or anything within it, but you do get, <laughs> but you know, they, some of the, I mean, some of the companies, they, um, yeah, I think some of the leads in Norfolk ballot papers survive. Certainly for the, the Pennsylvania Railroad and the, the Bethlehem Steel files that you have, they actually mature, they kept the ballot papers and copies of some of the ballot papers. So, you know, they are arranged like kind of political ballot papers and all this kind of thing. Yeah, and they have secret ballots and, all this sort of thing. The Leeds and Northrop one, yeah, was so it, it had that 25 member council. And then what they had was they had committees as well, subcommittees. So some people that aren't on the council are also kind of co-opted onto these subcommittees. So there's a subcommittee for safety, for example. Uh, there's a subcommittee uh, for things like conditions. Uh, there's there's um, a parking subcommittee at one point. So there are different subcommittees. There's a sports subcommittee and a social subcommittee. There's a glee club at one point, which is associated with it. So there's kind of like social kind of committees. And then there are, there are more kind of serious kind of committees as well, um, which are kind of descended from it, if you like. So they have this kind of committee structure, um, which... Uh, different people that are interested in different topics essentially are invited to invited to join so what you then have is actually a system that suppose when you think about it being a factory of 800 people quite a lot of people are then co-opted in some way onto this committee system and feel that they have a consultative stake if you like in the setup so yeah so, so that is the way that it ends up being kind of structured if you like so it's quite interesting. Yeah, you get that whole, um, you get this whole kind of system of, of discussion set up and then you get, um, that then allows for consultation to come up as well um, in different ways. And this can cover all sorts of topics. So certainly wage and working condition kind of issues around time and vacations are the, the, by a long way the most kind of frequently discussed things but then you also get um, little insights into everyday factory life as well at the same time so one of the discussions that comes up is whether or not you know, there should be vending machines and what types of vending machines should there be and you know can there be in, in an almost kind of Homer Simpson like moment there's kind of like you know can we have candy machines as well <laughs> One of the requests that comes up and the executive committee tried to discourage it on health grounds. Um, there are discussions about, you know, can we have milk machines? Cigar machines is another one that comes up. So they, they're quite keen to allow the milk machines, less so cigar machines, for example. So, there are, so, so there's a kind of a, yeah, the, 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 there are lots of kind of, so I think what you can say about it is, is that it allows a kind of a bargaining about conditions in the factory that are probably broader than would happen between a union in the a labor union in the traditional sense which would very much probably stick to paying conditions right to to uh, um and, and maybe kind of demarcation of roles and this kind of thing to some extent but 
Um, but uh, yeah, you, you, you get a broader discussion going on there. I think the other thing that's going on is that it, it creates a sense of a social life around the organization because it has that sporting and social side. So again, there's an athletics union and they're doing things like they're, uh, they're organizing badminton in the canteen, right? And things like this on Saturdays or fencing, I think was another one that comes up. So it's not just kind of, you know, big American kind of field sports that they're doing, if they're doing them at all. It's the ones that come up seem to be things like fencing and tennis and or badminton, or, you know, things like, so So it's quite interesting that, there's, yeah, there's, there's all sorts of different <laughs> sort of activities going on around it. They have a show every year at Christmas, I think, as well. This kind of, this kind of comes up to the organized kind of theatre performances. So probably this is giving the factory more of a kind of a social life than it would do. And in this very soft way, then it's kind of encouraging cohesion, I think, and encouraging a very certain um, adherence. Well, certainly it encourages an adherence to the company union because people see the tangible kind of benefits and the sort of soft factors that help to build the kind of the community around the plant. So it's not just a, a nine to five thing. It's more than that. It kind of fosters loyalty as well, if you like, um, which, which is quite interesting. So, so it's not just about constructing HRM incentives. So there's a lot of you know, ideas around kind of strategic HRM nowadays and the idea that you should try and construct work incentives and, 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 and manage people's workloads according to this. And it's, it's not so much about work incentivization often it seems as trying to build around and around it and giving the employees a kind of a stake in feeling that they're building something um, around the organization as well. So that's quite an interesting kind of facet of it. Um, another issue that keeps coming up is parking, intriguingly. So, <laughs> so, so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the employees are like, well, we should have a, a parking lot. And then the next thing is, is that, you know, um, we don't have enough security in the parking lot and, you know, things like cars are getting broken into and all this kind of thing. <laughs> so, so yeah, so even that kind of side of it is quite, um, it's quite interesting how it comes up as well. Um, so, so I think it, yeah, it's, it, it, it's quite interesting in that sense. So I suppose you can say that it's giving, it gives employees, or it seems to have given employees a stake in the business. It's certainly when the government um, tried to, or the, the Wagner Act tried to abolish it. So the Wagner Act basically um, made it almost impossible how or has made it almost impossible for American organizations to have employee representation schemes after 1935 because what it kind of stipulates is that managers can't um, be involved in the organization of employee representation schemes, nor can they even support them. So the idea was is that Wagner um, very much saw employee representation schemes as union suppression as such rather than substitution and so this is what they were trying to stamp out was a sense that and I suppose there is a sense that okay you could say that maybe there's a conflict of interest as well so there's a case for arguing that I mean it's not something I personally believe as such but I, I would say that you could argue that okay maybe there's a conflict of interest in managers being involved and that maybe you do need an independent person to come forward and 
to, and that's that, that. There's one point of view there that you can advance in that direction, right? So, so yeah. So that so so because of this, the Wagner Act ended up legalizing this. I think the longer term problem that's come from this has been that the the, the long run, as you moved away from the kind of the managerialist model towards a more overtly st- uh, shareholder management kind of model in the US, then what you've ended up doing is kind of, as it, uh, is, is, is just ending up with a kind of a confrontational arrangement between the union, uh, the unions and employers. And so that's meant that, you know, as we get into the 21st century, newer employers have tried to avoid having unions altogether. And, and, and it, <laughs> so you get a lot of organizations today, like, you know, in the service sector and so on, where um, employees have no voice whatsoever. So a good um, recent case was Google, where employees, um, as, as Google has got bigger, it appears that employees have kind of lost voice gradually, as happens in a lot of organizations, but there's no unionization in Google's sector, right? Or, or very little, because it's such a new sector. Um, and so employees there, actually, they've campaigned for employee voice in some form to be introduced, or uh, whether it be unionization or a representation scheme or whatever it is. Um, we also see in some cases, American firms keeping up the representation schemes in Canada. <laughs> for example, after they're legalized in the US. So we know that actually, American firms weren't necessarily actually opposed to them. In fact, sometimes the opposite. So, yeah. So it's quite, it's quite, um, so it's quite an interesting kind of situation. But the Wagner Act, I think it's it's the unintended consequence of well-meaning legislation, essentially, right? Because the view has been out. You know, so sometimes these organisations are called company unions, and this is meant in quite a derogatory frame right so it's sort of saying well yeah these are things which <laughs> um, union. yeah yeah well, I mean, but again you know another argument that comes up here often is well you know germany has, has enjoyed much stronger productivity growth than that in that enjoyed you know post second world war than the u by the u.s and also the uk where again we had a, a similar national movement around the first world war period towards industrial councils and then moved away from it as well um, in a similar fairly similar pattern towards a much more um, confrontational mode of industrial relations so yeah so that broader kind of narrative uh, fits fits and flows into it if you like so yeah it's it's, it's an interesting time to be kind of looking at this um, no, I think we, we do have to be careful so the historical context matters. So, so one of the things that there, in terms of negatives, if you like, or what disadvantages of this kind of structure. So one of the other interesting things that happened was that um, as the depression got worse in Leeds and Northrop, the male employees started to argue for married women to be disbarred from working at the firm. For example, so there were never lots of married women. There were only about five percent of the employee base, um, and 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 of course, it being that kind of so this is why context matters because obviously, um, the women are never referred to at any point in the minutes as 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 women, 
right? So they're always gendered. They're always called girls, <laughs> even if they're married women. Some, well, apart from when they're wanting to ban married women from working in the factory, in which case they are called married women. <laughs> but generally speaking, they're always called girls and you can identify them being, they're not kind of disbarred from rooting or anything. So they are on the committee. You can see their names, you know, Miss such and such. They appear there in the minutes, they appear, and you know that they are women because everybody else doesn't have a title and then they have Miss <laughs> next to their name. So the, the kind of gender norms, if you like, of the period are kind of upheld there. But yeah, the, the, the danger there, so, but the, the, or the interesting thing that's inherent in this is that they first start campaigning for it in 1934, I think it is. And uh, this time the board say, no, we're not doing it. So they, they bring it to the executive board and they basically say, well, no, we're not. We don't really want to entertain this. We're not. Um, and then they bring it back in 1938. So they managed to hang on to their organization for a bit longer after the Wagner Act. And they bring it back as a topic in 1937 to 38. And in this time, the board do give in, essentially say, okay, we'll have a married bar, but we won't, we won't get rid of married women that are already working here, but we won't hire any new ones. So the interesting thing is, is that, so you can sometimes, so sometimes kind of formal labor unions are criticized for being um, quite protectionist of uh, particular labor bodies, so, or you know, particular professions. So you can get kind of demarcation in which, you know, only people that have had certain training can do certain jobs or uh, this kind of thing that labor unions can uphold. Well, in a similar sense, you can also get defensive movements happening from, uh, from employee representation schemes in the same way as well. So the danger that you have inherent with them um, is that they might not actually increase diversity. So it's sometimes suggested, oh, okay, um, what you need to increase the diversity of opinion and ideas within the running of an organization is an employee representation scheme. The danger is, is that they can actually be if you like captured by the dominant group in an organization to actually reduce diversity and, and reduce competition, if you like. So, <laughs> so, so, and, and, and Ali probably wouldn't now vote, for example, to exclude married women. There are different political agendas around that could conspire to capture such an organization, maybe, or things like this. So certainly there's a risk of that inherent within it. So, so yeah, there the, the can be, in some ways, conservative organizations as well, or protectionist organizations too. So, so that's the downside in the sense is that if you're going to give people democracy, then they will use democracy <laughs> in some different ways that you might not anticipate again. So yeah, so, so there are, yeah, there, there are particular downsides, if you like, <laughs> or risks that can emerge with representation schemes such as this. Yeah. And it sounds like um, that's a pretty important implication given the current policy level of interest in policy circles around um, around this idea. Yeah, so, so this is the risk that could could emerge. Is that, so these ideas would be, or these kind of schemes are novel, would be essentially novel to the US because nobody within living memory has had them. Uh, I mean, there's also been evidence from Germany, for example, of... Um, employee representation schemes where um, German employees have voted to exclude uh, Im immigrant workers or people from different 
countries other than Germany, for example, and things like this at different times or um, within different frames. So, so it can sometimes, even in cases of good practice, be used as more of an exclusory, or, or, or they can even forbid certain categories of worker from joining the scheme or things like this. That didn't happen in the, the Morris and Leeds case, but you could see that it could happen in cases where, you know, you might say that only permanent workers say somewhere could be allowed to join it. And then that could end up with there being a large second class of temporary workers within an organisation. And obviously, precarity and these kinds of things in modern organisations are a big issue, right? So so, so it could be that there's, you, you end up with structures like that being formed. Um, I mean, one scheme that Leeds also tried was to allow um, only people, so he actually changed the routing rights and governance arrangements of the company so that people that were earning more than $1,500 a year and who'd worked for Morris and Leeds for more than five years could buy shares and then they would be the only shareholders that were allowed an actual vote in the company as well. So he tried this as well. We don't really, there isn't any kind of statistics to show unfortunately how successful this is uh, but we, we suspect that probably not many of the employees took up the opportunity to buy shares after they'd been at Morrison Leeds for five years because uh, you wouldn't want to double invest yourself in your so there's a strong disincentive against buying into your own employer sometimes in the sense that you don't want to have your eggs in one basket right so <laughs> so we're not we're not certain that many employees actually tried this but he did try that approach as well uh, but but it stopped short of the firm being an overall cooperative if you like because it's not putting you know um and and and, and where yeah i mean i think this is important to be clear about as well is that what leads had or what leads in norfolk had really was a kind of a they had a dual system of so the board was one thing and workers were here. Um, in some cases, what you're now talking about is having worker reps on boards and things like this, but how does that work? How does that align itself? It's not clear. What what does that person actually do? You know, do they are they just a non-executive director in kind of modern parlance? Do they turn up, you know, and and and, and just sort of nod in the corner? I don't yeah, so <laughs> so there there are risks like this inherent in the idea. I mean I think it's interesting. I think um, I, I think it's probably you know our kind of the leads enough of evidence kind of shows that in some ways um, these kind of bodies can be more useful than not because it provides a frame for resolving conflicts um, and all of these sorts of things. And I think that can be useful in an organisation. Um, the danger is is that at the same time if not constituted carefully, uh, you can also have unintended consequences arising out of it as well. Um, and I think that's the other side of it. Um, I'm not convinced though that you could sell it to organisations on the basis of, say, improving innovation though. Necessarily, it might improve safety, I think, and, and, and operation, operational efficiency in some ways, but it's probably... Uh, but but it's more of a soft factor than a hard factor, if you like. It's more, you know, if you if you get people invested in an organisation in a soft way, then they're more likely to be interested in improving kind of safety and conditions and working practices 
in getting rid of inefficient working practices and this kind of thing and then then they will be if they're if they're if they're prevailed upon in a hard way if you like <laughs> yeah so yeah but I, I, so i think they're, they're probably more good than not but at the same time we have to be careful about exactly what benefits these things will bring and that's be a kind of a major discussion about it of course as far as i perceive things contemporarily the possibility of measured discussion seems very few sometimes, but <laughs> but there has to be a clear idea of what these bodies are for. And actually that's probably partly why they ended up being suppressed essentially in the 1930s um, was because of that ambiguity about, you know, what were they for? Mm. What did they, it's quite interesting to actually look at what they actually did as well which is why the, yeah, <laughs> the access to the materials at Hagley was really useful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're able to uh, have so much benefit from the access to the materials. Yeah. And, uh, and thank you so much for sharing your work with me today. Yeah. And it's, yeah, yeah, well, I look forward to being able to come back to Hagley at some point, because I, yeah, <laughs> really, I really enjoyed that as well. It was, it was great, you know, it's perfect to be, so in the modern, academic environment it's very difficult to get kind of that sort of relaxed kind of out of the way remove you know kind of atmosphere that's really useful for sort of thinking as well and and that kind of thing well, so Hagley well, has that and this is a real a real advantage of it as well so so it was it was great for that to just be able to go there and sort of crack on and look through <laughs> get these boxes get these microfilms look through them take these photos all of, you know this is perfect environment for that mm -hmm. yeah well, thank you for saying so and, and we can't wait to see you again yeah uh, one, uh, once world conditions permit once things improve yeah we'll... <laughs> yeah i'm glad it was this year i'm glad it was last year and not this year for that, <laughs> that reason yeah. Well, yeah well thanks a lot kevin yeah thanks a lot for having me yeah sure